Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. This episode of Lung Cancer Considered is part of our virtual tumor board series, and we'll discuss the dynamic and evolving topic of managing resectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer. We've seen a lot of updates in this area, and we have several newly approved treatment options. To help us navigate best practice, I'm joined by three globally renowned experts with extensive experience in this space. I really value uh, all of their opinions. We'll start with Dr. Isabel Opitz, Professor of Thoracic Surgery and Director of the Department of Thoracic Surgery at the University Hospital of Zurich, Chair of the Lung Cancer Center of Zurich, and the President of the European Society of Thoracic Surgery. She recently received the ISLAC Robert J. Ginsburg Lectureship Award for Surgery at the 2022 World Conference on Lung Cancer. Isabel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. I really look forward. We're also joined by Dr. Jonathan Spicer, Medical Director of the Thoracic Oncology Program at McGill University in Montreal, where he is the Advanced Thoracic and Upper GI Surgical Oncology Fellowship Program Director. You'll also recognize him as one of the co-authors of the Checkmate 816 study. Jonathan, thanks for being here. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to this. And our third guest is a medical oncologist, Dr. Tina Cascone, Assistant Professor and Thoracic Medical Oncologist at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. You'll know her as the Principal Investigator for the Neoadjuvant Neostar Study. Tina, always a pleasure. Hello, Stephen. Thank you and the ISLC for inviting me to this discussion today. Well, I mean, the three of you bring so much expertise and vision to this discussion. Let's just jump right into our case today. Uh, our patient for this virtual tumor board is a 55-year-old female who was incidentally found to have a three and a half centimeter right upper lobe lung nodule as part of a pre-op workup for an elective orthopedic surgery. She's a former smoker at one pack per day for 15 years. She quit 15 years ago. The workup was guided by her primary care physician. A CT scan showed that three centimeter peripheral right upper lobe mass, no enlarged lymph nodes, and a CT guided biopsy revealed adenocarcinoma of the lung, got a PET scan, a brain MRI, no extra thoracic disease was noted, and she's referred for possible thoracic resection. Isabel, in this case here, where we have a CT guided biopsy, what are your thoughts about invasive mediastinal staging in a case like this? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I think it depends a little bit on some other factors, like do we have any N1 nodes uh, involved and how is the localization of the tumor? Is it rather centrally located? Because the three centimeter is kind of the threshold for invasive mediastinal staging. Anything above that, I would highly recommend. And if there is any additional risk factor, such as N1 node or central localization. And in any case, in doubt, I would always go rather pro-mediastinal uh, invasive staging with EBUS uh, than not doing it. And Isabel and Jurek, is that typically EBUS or mediastinoscopy? It is EBUS. What's the availability of EBUS in Europe? It's, uh, I mean, like, I can obviously not speak for whole Europe, but I would say it's uh, quite widespread uh, all over Europe. And here in Zurich, we would have uh, everyday access and in an interventional bronchology suite. And would this be primarily from the thoracic surgeon or the, the pulmonologist? So we have here a joint venture um, intervention suite, which is uh, partly... Um, 
uh, chaired by pulmonology and thoracic surgery. Wonderful. Uh, Jonathan, in Montreal, any difference in your approach? You know, when is invasive mediastinal staging appropriate? Yeah, I, I would um, agree with uh, everything that Isabel said. You know, those are the pretty uh, well-defined guidelines for, for when we stage. The, the only other circumstance that I might add to that is, you know, if you're maybe hedging towards not doing it, it's a low SUV tumor. I think that that's all the more uh, reason to do it because the sensitivity for bed there is not as good. Um, but in general, we, we uh, lean towards doing invasive staging by eBus. And again, it's a bit of a mixed bag of who does it between thoracic surgeons and interventional pulmonologists uh, around Canada and New Mexico. All right. Well, good to see these uh, aligned. Tina, what about your group? Uh, any differences there? Yeah, Stephen, thank you. Well, I have to say that our group uh, practice is very well in alignment with the recommendations that Isabel and Jonathan just mentioned. We discussed the need for invasive mediastinal staging, uh, obviously, at you know every multidisciplinary tumor board discussion for patients who present with potentially resectable disease. Uh, because as you know, both uh, my colleagues have mentioned, we want to really ensure that accurate staging for uh, a nodal disease. And, and like Isabel mentioned, really, although uh, the three centimeter really is the uh, cutoff, the location peripheral, um, I agree, we tend to perform EBUS when in doubt, um, really on all our patients. Uh, and we tend to do, as I mentioned, EBUS um, more than mediastinoscopy. This is done by our interventional pulmonologist. I've seen mediastinoscopy usually done in the outside. So when patient presents, um, patient present from the outside, sometimes we do see uh, invasive staging done with the mediastinoscopy, but otherwise EBUS would be our approach. I agree with, with all of your opinions. I think it's an important part of staging. It's often skipped, although there's some interesting debates about in the future, if we're going to go with neoadjuvant systemic therapy, how critical it is. But I will say that across the world, there are certainly areas where EBUS is not as prevalent, parts of South America, lots of Asia, uh, and in those cases, mediastinoscopy, they play a, a larger role. In our case today, this patient was discussed at a multidisciplinary tumor board. We definitely want to encourage that. And invasive mediastinal staging was recommended. She had an EBUS, and that showed ipsilateral paratracheal nodal involvement. And so we have R4 lymph nodes, uh, positive for adenocarcinoma, a three and a half centimeter primary, uh, R4 mediastinal node involvement, so a T2A, N2, stage 3A, non-small cell lung cancer. So next question in our, our algorithm is whether the patient has a resectable tumor. Isabel, what kinds of things are you looking at to determine if a cancer is resectable and if a patient's operable? Yeah, thank you, Stephen. And I just quickly wanted to also uh, stress what Tina was saying, the discussion in the multidisciplinary tumor board, of course, is not only for the treatment allocation, but also for the diagnosis and staging, very important. Thank you for pointing that out again, Tina. So for these uh, two questions, I think there are two aspects we have to um, look at. One is the operability in terms of the functional capacity of the patient and um, and the comorbidities. So in terms of the functional reserve, when we look at the lung resection, there are different algorithms that we can use, like, for example, from the European Society of Thoracic Surgeons and Respiratory Physicians, there is an algorithm that uh, guides you through very easily about the reserve and measured by DLCO and FEV1, when is a patient potentially resectable um, in terms of the uh, lung function. 
However, I would like to stress the point here we have uh, in our patients, many patients with emphysema, and uh, these rules do not always equally reply, apply when you have a patient with hyperinflation and emphysematous lung areas who can even benefit if you take out some parts of the lung in, uh, in a context of a lung volume reduction concept. So this is uh, for the operability in terms of the functional reserve, uh, which uh, is maybe the easier part of the question. The more difficult one is the resectability. Uh, I think there are numerous recommendations in current guidelines uh, which are not similar. When we come now to this specific case, it's uh, in particular the question about the mediastinal lymph node. It seems to be one station. So in terms of the station, I think uh, across all guidelines, and I'm curious to hear the other experts, but I think we would agree that this is a, a mediastinal lymph node um, invas invasiveness that we would call resectable. One thing we should look at is um, if it's a bulky N2, that's according to NCCN, a diameter above three centimeter. Uh, everything is being called bulky would, uh, at least we here in Zurich, not consider to be a resectable disease. And then there are some other factors that are called fixed or low or gross volume of tumor in the mediastinum, which are, to my opinion, not very precise and difficult to assess. I think the bulky one is the most straightforward. And here it's a single station, um, not described as bulky. So I would call this patient resectable. Yeah, wonderful. And you know, uh, you bring up so many good points about, uh, you know, some cases where, where it may not look like the patient would tolerate it, but, you know, volume reduction can be beneficial. I think the, the lesson here for me is, you know, resectability, that decision needs to involve a surgeon and uh, medical oncologists, pulmonary medicine, maybe shouldn't be making that call. Jonathan, anything to build on, on what Isabel said? She had mentioned, you know, bulky uh, is uh, sort of a, a clinical term, but really something we, we stray from. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I think it was a very uh, comprehensive discussion of operability. You know, we, we have to make use of adjuncts like uh, stress testing and uh, nuclear medicine testing to determine, you know, to what extent a patient can undergo a major operation, if it's going to be a bilobe or a neonectomy or something like that. So, and the centrality of the lesion is, is quite important in that regard. You can have some pretty nasty three centimeter tumors that are uh, awkwardly positioned that, that might um, uh, force you to do a more extensive operation than a lobectomy. But um, at face value from the stem of the, uh, of the case that we discussed, you know, this is an operable patient because you didn't suspect any mediastinal adenopathy at, uh, at first uh, imaging with CT and PET. And even if he had two or three, uh, or she had two or three uh, nodal stations that were positive, if those are not size significant on CT and they're not coalescing with the central mediastinal structures, the bronchus, the trachea, the uh, PA, then, then that's resectable disease. In, in regards to the bulky adenopathy, for, for me, it, the size is not as important as its definition. So if the, the N2 lymph nodes have started to merge with central structures and you lose fat planes with the uh, airway or the pulmonary artery, then, then, then you're talking about disease that is much less likely to be amenable to a complete resection. 
even after downstaging. So uh, I have seen three centimeter uh, patients with three centimeter mediastinal lymph nodes that are completely circumscribed with a clear flat plane on the airway that is resected just like you resect any mediastinal mass and, and, and with no real significantly added morbidity. So uh, unfortunately, I think resectability will likely remain a local phenomenon about, you know, what, what surgeons are comfortable doing. And, mm. and, and that, that is a challenge that we, we still need to overcome. You know, it's, it's very hard to define in simple terms. Yeah. Yeah, those are, those are great points. What about molecular testing? Is that something that's necessary at this point, Jonathan? Yeah, I think it's essential. You know, um, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't think to treat a patient with metastatic disease with all of the options that exist for them um, without it. And now with all these approvals and locally advanced resectable disease, I think it's uh, and the options for, for non-operative treatment where some of these uh, added systemic therapies may no longer be available to the patient if they choose not to have surgery. Um, I think these knowing all of this stuff is, is really quick. And knowing it at the very beginning before you've triggered any treatment plan is uh, rather essential. I know that most of the world hasn't come to that point, but I, I do think we need to move in that direction in light of... Uh, all these different options that patients have that, that have meaningful impact in terms of their survival. Yeah, I think it does tell us a bit about, about what to expect and how to go forward. Tina, what about your approach to molecular testing in this space? And and if you're doing molecular testing, is this NGS to get all the information you can, or do you prefer single gene testing because of its rapid turnaround? What's what's your approach there in Houston? Absolutely, Stephen. Thanks for this uh, absolutely critical question. And I think I will build on what Jonathan just mentioned. Uh, the molecular testing is paramount for all our resectable patients, given the opportunity to administer now neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy in those patients without uh, EGFR and ALKA aberrations in their tumor based on the 816 uh, paradigm and also based on the administration of a targeted therapy, specifically EGFR uh, inhibitor uh, for patients with uh, with disease harboring classical EGFR mutations in the adjuvant setting. And also, if we think about the opportunity to disposition patients with resectable disease on clinical trials, evaluating novel combination therapies or match targeted therapies for our patients with specific uh, oncogenic drivers. So yes, absolutely critical. Uh, as far as uh, single gene testing, uh, liquid biopsy versus uh, more complete molecular testing. Here at MD Anderson, uh, we tend to prefer complete molecular profiling based on NGS, uh, on tissue for DNA and RNA, specifically for fusions. We also perform together the cytogenetics for uh, fusions rearrangements, as well as immunohistochemistry for PDL one and other markers. In the vast majority of the cases, uh, I can say that if there is no immediate tissue availability for testing, when uh, at times patients present uh, from the outside, so our institution is in the process of retrieving the archival tissue, 
which is also critical also for pathological confirmation, as uh, uh, Jonathan will mention, also the diagnosis, the histotype, or while we're waiting for a new proper biopsy to be done for a, a molecular testing, we obtain liquid biopsy, so based on ctDNA, because of the much faster turnaround time, really a few days compared to perhaps a slightly longer time for the tissue molecular testing. The single gene testing is rarely preferred for us, only perhaps pursued if there is lack of sufficient tissue if there is inability to perform a new proper biopsy. So I think that, you know, those are great points, uh, important as, as you uh, have mentioned before, that, you know, sometimes the yield of liquid on a localized tumor is a little bit lower. And so you're using this to supplement or to complement, uh, not to replace, I think, the tissue testing. We'd love to see more rapid NGS in our institution. It does take a bit of time. So we still do PCR and FISH. That's what was done in this case. Um, so this was a T2A N2 stage 3A lung cancer, and we did a PCR for EGFR, BRAF, KRAS. Those are wild type. We did FISH for ALK and ROS, and those were all negative. So to our knowledge, no actionable alterations. The PDL1 here was 50%. Um, Isabel, PDL1 high, resectable stage 3A, non-small cell lung cancer. And if we're talking about off-study, what treatment would you recommend for this patient? Thank you for the question. So um we indeed, just to mention this, have a particular SAKK trial for this subset of 3A and 2 with the immunochemo plus immunomodulatory uh, radiotherapy followed by resection. That will be my first choice. But uh, off protocol, I have to say that the checkmate um, substances are not reimbursed in Switzerland as of now. We would eventually still try to get the cost approval for this from the insurance. And... Um, if this is uh, not reimbursed, we would go for uh, classical chemo induction therapy followed by surgery and then also eventually um, adjuvant atezo in, according to Empower protocol. Jonathan, uh, what would your recommendations be? Um, and, and maybe another question, because I think Isabel gave what I think is a wonderful answer. How would you explain this to the patient? Right. So... I, our, our approach would be the same. I mean, we do, we're fortunate to have access through a compassionate access program uh, for the 816 regimen. So I think this is a perfect patient, really. Uh, all the right things have been done, and, and uh, she meets all the necessary criteria to, uh, to benefit from, from this. And the PDL1 50% sort of a bonus because uh, those patients tend to do best. So I would do the same. We, we would have access, so that's what we would do. If We would obviously offer, we have a number of trials that are uh, uh, fit this patient as well, so we would favor the trial, but if the patient prefers to proceed directly, that's that's what we would do. Um, sorry, I think you had, uh, there was something else to your question. Well, I mean, I, I think that neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy is, is very exciting for us, and I know that the two of you from a surgical standpoint are really on board and have really led the way here. Um, but how would you explain this to the patient you know, from, from right, a surgical right. standpoint? Yeah, so, so the alternative would be to go directly to surgery. And I, I still present that as an option to patients because not everyone wants to receive chemo or systemic therapy. Uh, but I, I explained to them that uh, while it may seem uh, pragmatic and, and, and like the most reasonable thing just to get it out as soon as possible that this um, can put them in a situation where uh, they may uh, be delayed or never receive 
systemic therapy. And when the disease has migrated to the lymph nodes, there's a high probability that they have disease that our tests cannot measure elsewhere in the body, the bone, the brains, uh, the brain <laughs> elsewhere, the uh, adrenals. And that, that, that this, is, this is where um, the problems arise a year or two or three down the road. And so our best approach is to eradicate as best as we can any kind of micrometastatic disease um, up front and, and then go on to surgery. And that, in fact, by giving these treatments, we're more likely to be able to offer less invasive and less extensive surgery. So, so that's sort of my spiel for, for most of these patients. Isabel, maybe I get can... it. I'm sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. The, the only other thing I'd add is um, the, the opportunity to offer rehabilitation to these patients. So if they're actively smoking or they have a number of other comorbidities, we afford them extra time by giving the preoperative therapy to get fit for their operation. And we found that to be extremely beneficial. So it ends up being a nice strategy for them. They're also not waiting for their operations. They, they, they have a planned surgical date that's based on the, on the treatment, which is quite significant in our environment where the wait times for front surgery can be quite long. Isabel, maybe I, I want to come back to you uh, sort of building on that point. You know, in the, in the U.S., um, there's this really strong push from the patients often to go right to surgery. Patients want surgery immediately. Sometimes they, there's been a little delay in their diagnosis and, and getting in to, to see the surgeon, uh, and, and they really want surgery tomorrow. And I think if the surgeon's not an advocate for neoadjuvant therapy, um, you know, I think it can't happen because really uh, that patient wants wants surgery tomorrow. Is is that the same kind of approach in Zurich, or do you feel like patients are really receptive to a neoadjuvant strategy? Uh, I have the impression that they're more receptive for neoadjuvant therapy because what we try to do here, uh, in also in particular these situations where you don't really have a a solid answer for now is uh, we do interdisciplinary clinics. So I'm, as the chair of the Lung Cancer Center, I'm personally doing for the patients being referred the triage. And if I see there is a case coming up like this, I would uh, triage this patient into an interdis interdisciplinary setting. Can be either with a radio-oncology or a surgeon and oncologist. And I think this really helps, you know, because even if like, I mean, obviously a surgeon like Jonathan in your clinic knows everything about uh, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, I wouldn't call him a nearly oncologist, but still knows quite a lot. But maybe not all the surgeons have all these information ready and all the answers ready for the patient for the disadvantages and advantages for one or the other approach. And this was why we really support here this interdisciplinary clinic where the patient has the opportunity to hear from both experts all the uh, side effects, um, the duration of the treatment, the efficacy, all the aspects that he needs to uh, have a present to take a decision together with the physicians. I think that's a, the perfect model. And really, communication needs to be open. I think the patients need to understand that we are talking um, and aligning our thoughts, and we're on the same team. Tina, let's let's jump back to U.S. practice. Again, off-study, what course would you recommend for someone with a T2A, N2, M0, stage 3A, resectable non-small cell lung cancer? Yes. 
So, Stephen, first, let me thank uh, Jonathan and Isabel for uh, these wonderful answers, specifically um, really the importance of the uh, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary clinic when the patient has the opportunity to discuss, ask questions about the approach to the medical oncologist, the surgeon, and the radiation oncologist in the same day. I think to me, it's uh, absolutely so valuable. We do that uh, here at MD Anderson, and I do appreciate the differences compared to having the patients seeing the different disciplines at different times. So thank you, Isabel, for that. Um, Off-clinical trial, Stephen, which is usually the um, the 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 first option that we would offer the patient if we do have a proper clinical trial uh, for which the patient would qualify, we would recommend in this case a Checkmate 816 uh, neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy uh, paradigm after, as uh, you have done uh, very well, the exclusion of EGFR and ALK aberrations, and again, other drivers for which we do have uh, matched perioperative targeted therapy trials. I would recommend three cycles of so platinum-based uh, chemotherapy with the uh, nivolumab and the backbone of the doublet chemotherapy. Uh, that's also an important piece of the discussion. It's chosen based on a number of factors for me. First of all, uh, uh, histology uh, as well as comorbidities. Uh, I tend to favor cisplatin if I can, uh, if we can here in the curative setting in a patient with an excellent performance status, no comorbidities. Uh, although I want to remind us that um, in an exploratory fashion, there were some you know, positive uh, signal from using carboplatin as compared to cisplatin with the uh, Checkmate 816. I tend to, we tend to uh, uh, use the pemetrexid for a non-squamous uh, uh, histology and a taxotere for the squamous histology. And if carboplatin is needed, uh, of course, so we would have the carboplatin and taxol for the uh, squamous histology, the carboplatin and pemetrexid for the non-squamous. Tina, any role for radiation in this neoadjuvant space? Yes, absolutely, Stephen. Thank you for bringing this point up because there is so much important research that is actually ongoing in this space. We have learned about the um, the, the the signal, the, the the very important signal with the SBRT and immunotherapy uh, with the trial performed by Dr. Altorki and colleagues uh, at Cornell uh, in terms of favorable uh, MPR and PCR responses, and we'll probably touch base on these uh, uh, terms and what do they mean in terms of surrogate endpoints. And there is a lot of additional research that is uh, uh, investigating not just one, but multiple immune checkpoint uh, inhibitors with radiation and uh, chemotherapy uh, in resectable patients. So definitely we're all looking forward to see more results uh, uh, with radiation and uh, the importance of translational work that we can learn uh, when we combine the strategies for these patients. Jonathan, do you feel like neoadjuvant radiation changes the complexity of the surgery at all? Um, uh, I, I, well, it's a, it's a good question. I, I, speaking to Dr. Al Torki and his experience with um, this uh, lo, sort of low dose uh, radio sensitizing, uh, sorry, not radio, but immunosensitizing uh, dosing of uh, SBRT, he didn't really feel that there was any real impact on the surgical conduct but there is evidence for these higher doses 50 60 40 to 60 gray in terms of bronchial complications um patients and and this is even after an ex, you know quite a long learning curve of maybe 15 20 years where we've been um, learning to operate after an albane type of regimen 
uh, it's still being published, there's, there's you know, more complications in these patients. So if I can avoid giving conventional radiation treatment doses, uh, especially with disease that is more central where I may have to do a bronchoplasty or, or pulmonary artery angioplasty. And by the way, that can be hard to predict whether you need to do that or not. You can have these great responses. Everything looks good. And in the OR, you find yourself having to do things that you didn't expect based on the pre-surgical uh, imaging. So if it can be avoided and, and it's, uh, you know, outside of the context of a clinical trial, I prefer not to give preoperative radiation and leave the field version to deal with any eventual recurrences should they happen. Um, but I have an open mind to, to, to what these uh, novel approaches can offer because the, the findings are quite compelling and, and dramatic over IO alone, certainly. And Tina, you mentioned uh, three cycles, which was what the Checkmate 816 regimen uh, used, but we know there are some regimens coming out like Aegean and Power 030, where it's back to our more traditional four cycles. Do you think that's a big difference, three cycles versus four? Yeah, Stephen, thank you for these questions, because it's something that also our patients uh, uh, at times question and we discuss uh, between us all the time. I think uh, that it's very encouraging to see uh, three cycles of platinum-based uh, uh, chemoimmunotherapy with the Checkmate 816 performing well in terms of uh, um, you know, sparing an additional cycle to our patients. And, you know, of course, here we talk about you know, financial toxicity and overall uh, toxicity for our patients. Um, you're absolutely correct. The perioperative trials all have a, a four-cycle uh, type of backbone for chemotherapy. It will be interesting to see uh, uh, in the subgroup analysis uh, whether you know that additional cycle might have an impact. Uh, I am not sure whether that additional cycle will be, and I think when we administer four cycles uh, as the classical approach. Um, perhaps there we have the advantage to do a scan uh, between cycle two and cycle three to evaluate, to evaluate the status of the disease, but definitely a lot to be learned uh, with the perioperative trials uh, upcoming. You know, stage three is so heterogeneous and there, there are so many different ways to get there. Isabel, let me ask you a question about a different type of stage three, not this case, but what if there were chest wall invasion? Um, does that influence your approach at all? Yeah, I think I was just talking when you asked uh, Jonathan, what when would you consider radiotherapy? I mean, there are certainly some subsets, like in particular um, pancreas tumors, right? That that where you where we all would traditionally mm -hmm. consider radiotherapy as an adjunct in the induction setting, and um, and chest walls uh, invasion might be a a similar situation. You know, I mean, we're not talking about like one rib, but if it's rather uh, several ribs um, infiltration. I think that radiotherapy indeed has a role and can help in the induction setting. Can I ask maybe a, a forward-looking statement, Isabella? I know there's no data for this yet, but if you had someone with chest wall invasion, um, they received you know some neoadjuvant therapy, whether it was chemoimmunotherapy or chemoradiation, and you had a great response, let's just say a complete response, would you still do a chest wall resection? I, I think I would, yeah. In particular, in this situation where we are still learning, and I think we need to to learn more about the correct biomarkers who um, who are predicting us complete response indeed. And um, you know, when we look at the checkmate data, we had I think it was twenty five percent of complete response, and uh, and we need to know of 
we can identify predictive biomarkers that, um, that help us for the future uh, in identifying those patients. So we need the tissue afterwards still, I think, in this phase to, to learn in particular. Yeah, that's our, that's our approach. But I wonder if there's a, a future where maybe, maybe we base things on the, on the, the post-treatment status. But I guess we're, we're not quite there yet. It's a really interesting space. Um, let's go back to our case here. This patient uh, with Resectable 3A received Checkmate 816 regimen of carboplatin, paclitaxel, and, and nivolumab. After three cycles, um, she got a CT scan that shows a minor response. Now, let me pause here. Tina, one of the things that we learned from the neoadjuvant studies um, that you reported with Neostar is that the restaging CT and PET scans after immunotherapy can be a little challenging to interpret. Can you maybe expand on that for our audience? How can these scans be a little misleading? For sure, Stephen. Thank you for uh, uh, that question. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, we learned a lot in this regard uh, in conducting neoadjuvant uh, trials with immune checkpoint inhibitors specifically in the context of the uh, Neostar study and also in the context of uh, other experiences uh, that have been reported. After the administration of uh, immune checkpoint inhibition, we did observe the um, the appearance of abnormal lymph nodes uh, as scans post-therapy, uh, CT by size and SUV by PET-CT. And uh, uh, while we saw a positive association, a positive correlation between the um, the degree, the magnitude of uh, um, radiographic response and the magnitude of pathological regression, there were several cases where we saw this enlargement and the flaring of lymph nodes um, that led us to think that the disease was progressing. And after the first uh, two patients were uh, taken off trial and disposition to uh, a frontline therapeutic approach. Uh, at, at the multidisciplinary tumor board discussion, when this phenomenon that we call nodal immune flare or NIF uh, continued to occur, we decided to biopsy uh, these flaring lymph nodes. And what we found is that there was no evidence uh, of uh, uh, disease, but there was this hallmark uh, of sarcoid-like reaction on ca non-cascading granulomas in these uh, flaring lymph nodes. Uh, and this phenomenon um, histologically was not present in the lymph nodes at baseline at the invasive mediastinal staging. And this phenomenon uh, occurred when we um, went back and performed a, a full analysis on set in 16% of patients treated with these uh, agents. And this is quite important uh, because uh, you can take away potentially curative surgery from these patients if uh, uh, we fail to distinguish properly uh, a true progression of the disease in the lymph nodes from uh, a flaring um, phenomenon that could be related to uh, a, a general um, uh, immune reaction to these agents, as we, in fact, uh, validated by doing translational work and analysis, as Isabel was alluding to, on these uh, flaring lymph nodes. Um, so absolutely important phenomenon that now has been incorporated in um, other uh, studies where uh, when there is such an occurrence, it's very important to biopsy uh, these lymph nodes. Yeah, to not make assumptions there. Jonathan, when you get these restaging CT scans, what are you looking for? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's really interesting to look at the restaging scans because there's such variable degrees of response. And um, I'd probably quote a, a really nice study that was done by the MD Anderson Group led by uh, Dr. Antonoff where they looked at the degree of response in, um, 
in the nodes and the primary. And what, what they found is the patients who had significant response in N1 uh, lymph nodes, more so than N2 or in the primary, were more likely to require um, advanced surgical maneuvers. And I'm referring to obtaining, uh, maybe this should be standard for all thoracic surgeons, but they're not usual maneuvers if you're doing an upfront resection would be to get proximal control on the PA, pulmonary, possibly having to do a pulmonary angioplasty or sleeve or bronchial sleeve. And, and so while we don't have great data to tell us when the complete response has occurred or not, um, we do have some information building up now about how to assist the surgeon in terms of uh, being prepared for the, the degree of complexity the case might, um, might uh, require. So I, I think the key points are you need a contrast-infused CT uh, post-induction to see the relationships with the pulmonary artery because that's usually where you're going to have difficulties. And, uh, you know, if you're dealing with disease that involved or uh, still involves the chest wall or if you happen to be doing um, more complicated cases like superior sulcus tumor, then, then additional types of imaging like MR and all that can, can be... Um, useful. Uh, we've removed PET from our usual uh, post-induction um, pathway uh, simply for the reasons that uh, Tina illustrated that, that more often than not it leads to confusing information that, you, that doesn't really change the ultimate plan. So if the disease is still resectable on CT, we'll proceed to resection uh, barring any gross progression uh, elsewhere with the caveat that we may be missing metastatic progression, but that is a very, very unusual scenario. What about timing? Uh, Isabel, if someone receives the neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy, what's your usual timing after, after that therapy for going to surgery? Yeah, thank you, Stephen. I, I just want to stress one point that Jonathan said, because it's so important, the contrast enhancement of the CT scan, because very often we see PETs, CT scans uh, from external collaborating hospitals without contrast enhancement. And that's so critical for us that I, I would like to pick it up and stress it here one more time. Thank you for mentioning it, Jonathan, because for us, for planning our, our procedure, it's very important. So we uh, usually wait four to six weeks. Um, that's our approach here. If there is a difficulty in timing in terms of availability of OR capacity or other reason, we would even consider a bridging cycle then. And um, that, that's what we, what we normally do. I like that approach. Um, I think that's, that's an interesting one. Jonathan, if I think of the surgery itself, you know, we talked a little bit about radiation, but what about immunotherapy? Does neoadjuvant immunotherapy complicate surgery? So I think this is one thing that we actually have data for, and I think the answer is is no. You know, the the, the um, post-operative outcomes between chemo versus chemoimmunotherapy are identical and sort of numerically favor patients who got chemoimmunotherapy. Um, one thing that uh, one of my colleagues who's also on Checkmate six, Moish Lieberman, uh, who's a phenomenal surgeon, said, which I think is true, uh, anecdotally, is that when the operation is hard on the surgeon, it's good news for the patient. And when it's easy on the surgeon, it might not be such good news. And then we anecdotally kind of noticed that, that those patients who have really robust pathological uh, responses tend to be 
surgically maybe a little bit more uh, complicated, but not more so than what we might have seen in the days of chemo radiation. Or even, you know, we have upfront surgery patients that are just really, really hard to operate on. For Maybe they had TB in the past. Maybe they have a very inflammatory tumor. Um, so I think the data kind of points to it being a bit of a, um, uh, uh, you know, a reaction to some, some difficult cases early on in the experience with immunotherapy, but, but not, not necessarily directly related to immunotherapy. You know what? I'm sorry, Isabel. What about your experience? Does neoadjuvant therapy make the surgery any more difficult? I think what uh, Jonathan just said is um, is overall. I would say it's it's true. But I think now we were speaking of very experienced hands, right? Surgeons that have uh, mm. several decades of experience in operating on patients uh, with induction treatment. So what I can see here, also in particular with minimal invasive surgery being the primary choice of the approach that the younger colleagues now in their training, let's say in initial training phases, they are in face with difficult situations um, when they come to cases like this, because I think it has been also very nicely shown that hyla fibrosis is um, increased. And that is obviously a more um, difficult part than particular for, for younger colleagues for the dissection and the hilum. And so I would say it's not increasing morbidity or mortality. I agree with this, but I think the complexity in particular for, for our younger colleagues learning on robotics and minimal invasive, other minimal invasive approaches such as bats, I, I see a little bit more of a challenge for them here. Mm. Um. One more question, Tina. After surgery, we're, we're looking at that pathology report for the depth of response, and we're using terms like PCR, like MPR. Can you briefly explain what we're looking for and what that means? Absolutely, Stephen. Um, one of the advantages, I feel, of the neoadjuvant uh, perioperative approach is the opportunity to evaluate what we call surrogate endpoints of clinical outcomes, as you mentioned, the MPR, major pathological response, and PCR, pathological complete response, which can provide um, a rapid or faster readout of efficacy as compared to having to wait years to look at benefit in terms of uh, hard clinical outcomes such as SOS, DFS, CFS, and so forth. So MPR is defined as, uh, um, again, major pathological response, as a 10% or less uh, viable uh, tumor in the resected specimen after neoadjuvant therapy. PCR is defined as the uh, complete absence of a viable tumor. And I want to emphasize that several trials in this setting have used different type of definition in terms of uh, uh, MPR and PCR evaluated in the tumor bed only, in the tumor and the nodes, um, and outcomes have been reported separately for uh, these locations, as we've learned from the Checkmate 826. So this is a very important point uh, for uh, for us to learn from our pathology colleagues. And there is a lot of research that is ongoing to to harmonize and unify the, this definition and how we get to this definition in terms of uh, um, specimen grossing and evaluation. 
Of course, I want to add one important point that historically the NPR has been uh, implemented as a, a surrogate end, uh, end point uh, in these trials because we have learned that it, it occurs in approximately 15 to 20 percent of patients treated historically with adjuvant chemotherapy, whereas pathological complete response um, has not been initially utilized in the uh, prior to immunotherapy era due to its rate occurrence, four percent, five percent as a median to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but that neoadjuvant chemotherapy, yes, but but the immunotherapy has definitely uh, completely revolutionized uh, these numbers. And now we we hope to see the PCR, as we have learned from the Checkmate 816, a potential surrogate candidate that we could use in the future uh, to predict outcome. You know, I think it's been so interesting that PathCR, while we use it in breast cancer, was kind of new for us in lung cancer. But you know, uh, Jonathan, as you and colleagues have shown, it really does correlate well with long-term clinical outcomes. We're excited to see these durable responses. And, and really, it's it's a new era for us um, using these surrogate endpoints, uh, maybe trying to push the boundaries of surgery, looking ahead. And uh, there's so many things to do. We didn't get a chance to talk about, you know, driver-positive lung cancer. Do we have different approaches? Clearly, we do. Uh, but we'll have to save that for another time because, you know, unfortunately, we are we are out of time for this episode this has been really informative. I love speaking with all three of you. You know, hopefully look forward to more discussions in person at Congresses. Uh, but for now, just, you know, thanks to the three of you for your insights, for being so generous with your time, uh, and of course, for your own individual efforts in advancing the field. And so uh, thanking our guest, Dr. Isabel Opitz. Thank you, Simon. This was really a very exciting uh, interview and podcast. I really enjoyed the discussion, and I would like to take the opportunity also to thank ISLC for this great opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, and and thanks to Dr. Jonathan Spicer. Thank you so much, Stephen. So fun uh, chatting with such experts like yourselves, and thank you to the ISLC for the opportunity. And I learn so much every time I do things like this. So thanks. Um, same here, and and of course, Dr. Tina Cascone. Thank you, Stephen, to you and this wonderful panel of colleagues and friends, and of course, the ISLC. Wonderful discussion. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org, under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 